Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Once again, we welcome you to Constitution Classroom with your host, Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. And Colonel, as 2020 comes to a close, we still have an awful lot to talk about in terms of current events before we return to our examination of the Constitution. What are your thoughts on uh, what is going to happen over the next few days in Washington, D.C., now that we're past Christmas, but uh, approaching the new year? What, what can we look forward to? Well, Brian, of course, I want to wish everyone a blessed new year, but, you know, there's a saying about events going on that there are those who make things happen, there are those who watch things happen, and there are those who wonder what happened. And if we don't know the Constitution, we're definitely going to be in that latter category, those who wonder what happened. Although maybe I should add there probably is another category of those who don't wonder what happened because they don't care. But they may be the happiest of all, but they're also probably the least effective, and we are supposed to make an impact on the world in which we live. Our Lord told us to occupy until he comes, and even if we are in a dying society, he says to be watchful and strengthen the things that remain that are ready to die. And so we need to stand firm for the truth regardless. Well, first of all, as far as court challenges, there was another lawsuit filed in the U.S. Supreme Court, and this is after the state of Texas had sued Pennsylvania and three other states, and after the Supreme Court had wrongly, in my opinion, refused to hear that case with two dissenting votes, those of Thomas and Alito. But then the Trump campaign filed a petition for a writ of certiorari, that is a request to the Supreme Court to hear a case out of Pennsylvania. And anyway, so that was filed last Wednesday or Tuesday, I believe it was. And anyway, it finally got recorded by the Supreme Court on Wednesday, right after it was recorded. The Foundation for Moral Law filed an amicus brief with the Supreme Court supporting the Trump campaign. And besides arguing that the Constitution is quite explicit in saying that there is to be a national day of choosing the electors, and that is to be determined by Congress, and that the manner by which they are chosen, again, that's quite explicit. This is to be determined by the state legislatures, and they are given plenary power to make that determination. But after making those points, we also added something else, and that is that there is also a preference in law that cases be decided on their merits. Frankly, when I was senior staff attorney at the Alabama Supreme Court, I found that cases saying that cases are to be decided on their merits, that the court would cite those case precedents pretty much whenever they wanted to decide a case, and they would ignore those precedents when they didn't want to decide. But the point that we made is that in all of these lawsuits that states have filed, that campaigns have filed, and so on, in all of them, they have been presenting the evidence of irregularity, of illegality, of unconstitutionality, and of fraud, and have asked the courts to look at the merits of these cases. and. 
with a very few exceptions, the courts have simply refused to address the merits. They said either it's not ripe yet, that is, it's too soon, or it's moot, it's too late, or latches, that is, the matter should have been brought earlier in time, or we don't have jurisdiction, or other issues like this. But we're saying, please address the issues here on their merits, not only for the purpose of this election, but for future elections to come. I'm not optimistic that the court is going to decide to grant certiorari or hear this case. They are going to be meeting again, I believe, on the 10th of January, and I think it's likely that they will sit on this until after the 6th of January, until the 10th, and then say, well, the electoral vote's already been counted, so it's moved now. But anyway, there still is a possibility that the courts could intervene, and unlikely perhaps, but it is still a possibility. Regardless of that, and let's just discount the court action for the present time, there are other things that are going on. First of all, on January 3rd, the new Congress will take office. So a lot of people think that happens on January 20th. No, the president and vice president take office on January 20th. The new Congress will take office on January 3rd. Now, when they do so, in the Senate, there is going to be a slightly different makeup in the Senate. There are going to be, as of right now, some 51 Republicans and 48 Democrats. There are, of course, two seats that are up for a contest in Georgia. Those will be decided on January 5th. But on January 3rd, it will still be, in fact, I believe it's going to be 52 to 48 at that time. And anyway, so besides the new senators and new congressmen taking office at that time, They'll also do a few things like consider challenges and also elect officers for the various houses. Now, for example, in the House, Nancy Pelosi has said that she will be seeking another term as Speaker of the House, which, as we've seen in the past two years, can be an enormously powerful position. And it might seem that because the Democrats have a slight majority in the House. It's a lot smaller majority than it was. It's down from 233 to about 222. There are still a couple of seats that are open to some question yet, one in New York and one in Iowa. But as far as electing a Speaker of the House, we need to remember this isn't elected by a majority of the Democrat majority. This is elected by the entire House. In other words, the Republican minority gets to vote on who the speaker is going to be. So let's suppose that a more moderate Democrat were to decide to challenge Nancy Pelosi for the speakership. All that moderate Democrat would have to do would be to get approximately six, maybe seven Democrats to support him. And if the 211 to 213, again, that's disputed. If the Republicans all supported him, he would be elected in place of Nancy Pelosi. Six Democrats supporting him and 213 Republicans, that would give him a majority. And so 
doesn't look right now like there's going to be a challenge. But if there is, that might be a possibility. Also, here's another interesting thing that will take place then, possibly, and that is that if there are contested elections, the House and the Senate can decide those contested elections, and that's not going to be an issue in the Senate as of right now at least, but it could be in the House. And we have two seats, one in New York where there are only a few votes dividing the candidates, and then one in Iowa where in the second district at southeast Iowa, the Republican has been declared the winner by six votes. That's one of the closest congressional elections in history, by six votes. Now, the Democrat, in this case, would have a couple of options. She can go to various avenues in the state to seek to challenge the results of the election, but she has said she's not going to do that. Instead, she is going to go to the House leadership and have the House challenge it and has the House determine who is the winner of that election. Now, if there is a Democrat majority and they vote strictly according to party lines, then the Democrat might be the winner of that election. And I might say, too, that in this respect, maybe the Founding Fathers hadn't really thought this through as carefully as they should have, and possibly the reason for this is that they didn't realize how partisan our elections would become. And they didn't realize that these would be decided on strict partisan bases many times. But anyway, so that House seat in Iowa and that House seat in New York could possibly be decided on January 3rd by the new Congress. Well, it's good to know that there's more than just a presidential race out there, because I'll tell you, there have been times <laughs> I thought there really was no other race going on. So I, I'm glad to hear that some of these things will be settled and that uh, this that you know the, the White House isn't the only hot spot. Um, Colonel, we'll be uh, diving back into the Constitution when we return. Uh, we will be revisiting uh, the uh, uh, Article 1, Section 8, particularly the uh, Commerce Clause, and it turns out there's an awful lot that we have yet to discuss there. Stay with us. This is Constitution Classroom. We'll be back in just a moment. why Relief Factor is so successful in lowering or eliminating pain. I'm often asked that question. Pete and Seth Talbot, the father and son founders of Relief Factor, tell me they believe our bodies were designed to heal. The doctors who formulated Relief Factor selected the four best ingredients, 100% drug-free ingredients that each help your body deal with inflammation. Order the three-week quick start now. Discount it to only $19.95 to see if it will work for you too. Call 800-500-8384. ReliefFactor.com. Hi, I'm Karen, owner of Lone Star Transfer. If you are a timeshare owner, getting out is probably a top priority. And now that the annual maintenance fees are right around the corner, this ongoing burden and expense is at the top of your list. Let us do for you what we have done for thousands of others. Our process is done legally, ethically, and quickly. Don't let another day go by with maintenance fees taking your hard-earned money. Give us a call for a no-obligation consultation at 844-284-4863 or online at LoneStarTransfer.com. 
Do you have an idea for an invention or new product? Do you think companies would be interested in your idea? Do you want to try to get a patent? Then call InventHelp now. InventHelp keeps your idea confidential and explains every step of the invention process. We create professional materials representing your idea and submit it to companies who are looking for new ideas. We have more than 9,000 companies who have agreed to review ideas in confidence. If a company shows interest in manufacturing your invention, we can negotiate on your behalf. We have helped over 10,000 clients receive patents. We also offer services including 3D modeling and animation demonstrating your idea, prototyping services, and we use state-of-the-art technology to show InventHelp client ideas to additional companies. Join the thousands of people just like you who chose InventHelp to pursue their idea. We are experienced. We are working for you. We are InventHelp. Call us for free information at 1-800-460-1663. That's 1-800-460-1663. Again, 1-800-460-1663. If you've fallen behind in your credit card payments during the shutdown, you're probably feeling some added pressures. And even a brief history of late payments can lead to a big drop in your credit score. But you don't have to solve these problems alone. Trinity Debt Management can help. We'll work with your creditors, put a stop to late fees and other penalties, and make a plan that helps you get caught up. We'll also consolidate your bills into one easy-to-manage monthly payment and negotiate much lower interest rates. Not only will you find immediate relief, you'll save thousands. And don't worry, it's not a loan. It's a smart way to get back on track. All you have to do is give Trinity a quick call and we'll take care of the rest. Right now, no one really knows what the future will bring. But one thing is for sure. If your debt has you down, we should talk. Here's the number. Call 1-800-990-6976. That's 1-800-990-6976. And just like that, we are back. This is Constitution Classroom. Your host is Colonel John Eidsmo with the Foundation for Moral Law. We will get to the Commerce Clause of the Constitution, but Colonel, there are a couple more uh, loose ends concerning elections that I know you wanted to comment on. Well, we talked about what's going to happen on January 3rd, and then we moved to two days later, January 5th. Because January 5th is going to be an election in Georgia, in fact, two elections in Georgia for two Senate seats. And all of this is a bit unusual. But here's what's happening. You know, we see in the Constitution that with some congressional supervision, the states will determine the matter by which their representatives and senators are elected. And in most states, The election takes place on the regular election day, and the candidate who receives the plurality is considered to be elected to the Senate. But Georgia is different. And in Georgia, it has to be not a plurality, but a majority. And the two senators, both Republican, Senator Perdue and Senator Kelly Leffler, they did not receive a majority. Purdue was very, very close to a majority, but not quite. And Leffler was a little less than, than he was. So both of these have to go to a runoff, and that runoff is scheduled for next Tuesday, January 5th. And whoever gets the majority of the runoff, and it'll be a majority this time because it's just the two of them in each, each election, will win that election. Now, here's the interesting thing, is that when that election is completed, 
if they're when we convene on the sixth of January, which is when the vice president is going to open the electoral college ballots, but at that time, who's going to be representing Georgia? Well, if we don't have a clear winner yet, and as close as this election appears it's going to be, there may be no clear winner yet by the sixth of January, then Senator Leffler will still be the senator for the junior senator. However, Senator Perdue's seat will be vacant. Now, why is that? Well, Perdue is a regularly elected senator whose term expired on January 3rd. And so if there's no replacement chosen by January 6th, then that seat is vacant. However, Kelly Leffler was appointed to the office to replace Senator Isaacson, who had resigned. And she is appointed until her replacement is chosen. So she will continue to hold office after January 5th until that race is decided. And so very possibly we'll have 50, we have 50 Republicans, and then those two seats, very possibly on the 6th, we'll have 51 Republicans and 48 Democrats and the one vacant seat. Or, you know, it's just possible, too, that Senator Perdue will have a clear majority or he'll, the other candidate will have a clear majority and the race will be decided by the night of the 5th. And so very possibly both seats will be there. But it could be a 52-48 Republican majority, 51-49, 51-48 Republican majority, or it's possible it could be 50-50. And if it's 50-50, then the new vice president would be the one to cast deciding votes. However, on the 6th, the current vice president, who regardless of who was elected, will continue to be vice president until the 20th of January. And that's Mike Pence. He will open the ballots that have been submitted by the electors of the 50 states. And he will have a couple of congressmen and senators who are assigned to be the tellers who will count the ballots of each of those states. And in alphabetical order, those states' electoral votes will be read. Now, if there is a challenge to the electoral vote from that state, then the joint session will divide into two, the House and the Senate. And this has to be a challenge by at least one congressman, but it doesn't have to be any more than one, and at least one senator. Senator Mo Brooks of Alabama has said that he is going to challenge these and there may be others who raise the challenge as well. But, and I don't know that there's been a senator who has announced that he'll join yet, but there are some who've said that they might. But if a representative and senator both join in this challenge, then the houses divide. Each house meets for two hours, where they will have two hours of debate on that challenge. One of the provisions of that is that no representative or no senator can speak for more than five minutes during that challenge. After the two hours, then each house will vote on whether to accept the challenge or reject the challenge. Now, here's what's not quite clear, and that is, in the House, will they vote as individual congressmen 
all 435 of them casting 435 votes? If so, assuming they vote by partisan lines, then Representative Brooks's challenge would probably be rejected on a close vote. But if they vote by state, Republicans appear to have a majority of the state delegations. And then there are three state delegations, those being Minnesota and Michigan. I don't recall this, or I don't recall the third right now. But anyway, and so if they vote by states, then the Republicans could win that challenge. Anyway, so there still is a slim possibility that the delegations of Arizona, of Pennsylvania, of Nevada, of Wisconsin, of Michigan, and of Georgia, that these could be challenged and that those delegates could be rejected or replaced by another slate of electors that have been submitted from several of those states. And so there still is going to be some drama. At any rate, whatever comes out of that, then on the 20th of January, whoever emerges the victor out of this process will become the new president and the new vice president. So it's still exciting, but again, if you don't understand the Constitution, then you're simply going to be wondering what happened, unless you're in that category that doesn't care. But if you were in that category, you probably wouldn't even be listening to this radio program. So Constitution Classroom certainly matters. And what we're trying to do here is give you an in-depth look at what the Constitution actually says and how it's being interpreted. What we're going to do from here now is go into our regular material that we've been discussing for several months now, and that is Article 1 of the Constitution, because Article 1 gives the powers and the other matters associated with the legislative branch of government, the Congress. Good way to remember this. If there's something you want to find out in the Constitution, if it's about Congress, it'll probably be in Article 1. If it's about the president, it'll probably be in Article 2. If it's about the courts, it'll probably be in Article 3. If it's about the relations among the states, it'll probably be in Article 4. If it's about amending the Constitution, Article 5. If it's general matters, Article 6. And if it's about ratification, Article 7. So knowing where those things are found, that's kind of a roadmap that will help you to look through the Constitution and find rather quickly what it is you're looking for. Okay. Well, when we continue right after our upcoming break, we will resume our discussion of uh, Article 1, Section 8, particularly the Commerce Clause. And, Colonel, I, I think this is, uh, we'll be going on three weeks here of discussing the Commerce Clause. Well, we've, uh, yeah. There's a lot to it. So please stay with us. We'll be back. Well, we've covered the Commerce Clause. We're finished with the Commerce We're Clause. We're done. Oh, well, Yeah. then mm-hmm. I guess we'll get on to the rest of I'll just make a quick reference to it and go on then. Okay, very good. We'll be back just the other side of these messages.
We are back. This is Constitution Classroom. Your host is Colonel John Eidsmo with the Foundation for Moral Law. And, Colonel, you'll have to forgive me for thinking that uh, there was still more to go at the Commerce Clause. It seems like we talked about it for a long time, but um, any final comments before we do move on? I know there, there is much more that you wanted to get to. Let's move on to look at what Article 1, Section 8 as a whole says. And this is one of the most important sections of the Constitution because this delegates powers to what the framers thought was to be the most important branch of government, the legislature, the Congress. You know, there are a lot of people who say that the Founding Fathers established three separate and equal branches of government. Constitution doesn't say that. It talks about separate branches, but it doesn't say they're to be equal. And if you look through the thinking of the founders and the thinking of those that influenced the founders, like Blackstone and Montesquieu, it doesn't appear that they thought that these three branches were to be equal branches. Rather, they thought the legislative branch was to be the most important and most powerful branch of government because the legislature would set the policy of the nation. They thought that the executive branch would be the second most powerful because the role of the executive was to carry out what the legislature decided. And the Supreme Court, the judicial branch, was to be, as Hamilton put it, the least dangerous branch. He said, the legislature exercises will that is, they determine the policy of the nation. The executive exercises force. He carries out the policy of the nation. And the judicial only exercises judgment. That is, they interpret what the legislature and what the judicial or what the executive have done. And so that in mind, we look to this very, very important section of the Constitution, Section 8, because this section is a section by which we, the people, delegate power to Congress. And Congress has only the powers that we, the people, have delegated to it. And as we see in that last clause, those that are necessary and proper to carry out the other powers that are delegated to it. And so we see, first of all, that Congress has the power to tax and spend for three purposes, those being to pay debts, to provide for the common defense, and to promote the general welfare of the nation. And Madison thought that any power exercised by Congress had to, first of all, fit into one of those categories, but then had to be authorized by one of the subsequent powers. Hamilton, on the other hand, thought that if it fit into one of those three categories, that was sufficient by itself. Frankly, I think Madison was right. But in the Butler versus the United States decision around 1934, the Supreme Court decided that Hamilton was right on that. But at any rate, let's go on to see what some of those powers are. And as we've been seeing for the last several weeks, one of those is the power over commerce to regulate the three ends, interstate commerce, international commerce, and Indian commerce, that is commerce with the Indian tribes, and under interstate commerce, that includes the power to regulate commerce among the states, but has been interpreted broadly to include the power to regulate intrastate commerce and intrastate, that is, production within a state. 
if that production or that intrastate commerce had a substantial effect on interstate commerce. And then we saw also that, although this isn't stated in the Constitution, there is also what constitutional scholars and judges call the Dormant Commerce Clause, and that is that besides authorizing Congress to regulate interstate commerce, there is also a restriction on the power of the states to regulate interstate commerce. And they can regulate interstate commerce to some extent. They can't discriminate against interstate commerce, except in very extreme circumstances. But normally, they can regulate interstate commerce if they aren't interfering with Congress's regulation and if the state interests that they seek to establish by that regulation, if that state interest is sufficient to justify the burden on interstate commerce. In other words, that's a balancing test. And with that, at least for the time being, we're going to leave the Commerce Clause behind. And we're going to move on to the next clause to establish a uniform rule of naturalization, that is, for persons becoming naturalized citizens, that's to be uniform across the nation rather than being a citizen of New Hampshire versus Virginia and other states. So that's to be national. And we've already talked about that on several occasions, including briefly last week. But let's go on to another, and that is to establish uniform laws on the subject of bankruptcies throughout the United States. That is why bankruptcy law is a national law, and we see some of the reason for that, and that is that because bankruptcy would have such an effect upon interstate commerce, it was thought that this should be national. Although we do also see that there are some state laws on bankruptcies too. For example, states have the power to determine what kinds of property are exempt from bankruptcy. For example, in some states, if you declare bankruptcy, you don't have to lose your house or your tools of your trade or one vehicle or things like that. Those laws vary a bit from state to state. Now, there's a question that we might think about here for a moment, and that is, as Christians who believe the Bible and believe that we should be paying our debts and be honorable at our business dealings, is it ever appropriate to declare bankruptcy? And I think sometimes bankruptcy can become a habit. Sometimes bankruptcy can be a rather disreputable way of getting out of paying just debts. The answer I would give as to whether it is ever justified to declare bankruptcy is that Sometimes you may be so buried under, maybe through medical expenses or things that are not your fault, that the only way you can dig out from under that is to get a fresh start. And so sometimes bankruptcy will do that. It will give you a fresh start. My own belief, though, is that after bankruptcy, well, you have no legal obligation to pay the debts that you had before bankruptcy you may have a moral obligation. And once you get back on your feet, I believe that a Christian does have an obligation to pay the just debts from before the bankruptcy. And of course, besides the type of bankruptcy that simply liquidates your assets and distributes them among your creditors and then wipes the slate clean and you start over, there are also what we call wage earner plans whereby you will 
still pay off your debts, but pay them at a much slower rate than you would have had to pay them under the contract you had before. So sometimes that's an alternative too. And if that will work, I really think that is definitely preferable to just a straight bankruptcy. It's the more honorable thing to do. We go on and we see other powers that are given to Congress. And one of these is the power to coin money rather than having currency for New Hampshire and for South Carolina and so on. We'll have one set of coin for the United States, and that includes money bills as well, to regulate the value of the coin or the realm and so on. And again, that should be something that is fixed. And I personally think that it should be fixed based on a precious metal standard, not necessarily just a gold standard, but gold, silver, and platinum, possibly other metals if they'd be appropriate. But we went off the gold standard in 1933, and since then, we have gone into wild deficit spending. It used to be that for every dollar bill that you had, there was supposed to be a certain amount of gold deposited in Fort Knox to cover that, that note. In fact, that treasury, that bill that you have simply is what we call a treasury note, that that bill means that there is this money stored up at Fort Knox that will cover this bill. And if you have a thousand dollar bill, there's a thousand dollars worth of gold in Fort Knox. That was the idea before 1933. Now that we've gone off the gold standard, we see inflations skyrocketing, not currently, but throughout most of history since 33, it has been. And we probably have a, dollar bill right now that might be worth about five cents in terms of actual gold. I'm not sure the exact amount right now, but I personally think getting away from the gold standard was a mistake and that we should make efforts, maybe not immediately, but eventually to get back on that gold standard again. Someone was pointing out to me just earlier today how some 40 years ago we had a terrible debate in this country about whether or not we could exceed a trillion dollars in the national debt. Now we exceed it with one bill, a stimulus bill. And we'll have more in the fourth segment. What can help you take advantage of today's low mortgage rates and save money? Rocket can. You could save hundreds of dollars every month by refinancing with Rocket Mortgage at today's near historic low rates. If your current rate is over 4%, with today's low rates, you could lower your payment by over $150 a month, saving thousands in interest every year. With a cash out refinance from Rocket Mortgage, you could consolidate and pay off high interest debt, tackle home improvements that could add value to your home, or even set aside cash for your child's future education. We've already helped over 1 million clients just like you reach their home financing goals this year alone. So remember this, what can give you the technology to refinance easily and save money? Rocket can. Call us today at 8338-ROCKET or go to rocketmortgage.com. That's 8338-ROCKET or go to rocketmortgage.com. Savings are based on quick loans, internal data, points and fees may apply. Call for cost information and conditions, equal housing letter, license in all 50 states, and analysts can see your access.org number 330. You've heard me talking about my pillow for three years, folks. It's the truth. I get the best sleep of my life with a my pillow. You can do it too. 
60-day money-back guarantee, 10-year warranty made in the USA. You'll sleep well or you'll get your money back. Go to MyPillow.com, click on the radio listener special, use my promo code USA, get two MyPillow premium pillows for the price of one, or call 1-800-951-8175. Get the best sleep of your life and do it now. Balance of nature's fruits and vegetables in a capsule. Changing the world one life at a time. When I first switched over, because I stopped taking the other supplements I was taking and switched over all the way to Balance of Nature, I really noticed a huge difference. It was amazing. Like better sleep, better attention, better energy. It was just really, really great. Balance of Nature is now offering 35% off on any new preferred order. Go to balanceofnature.com today and use discount code USA. If your credit card bills have gotten out of hand and you care about your credit, call Consolidated Credit now. If the interest rates on your credit cards are so high, it'll take years to get out of debt. Call Consolidated Credit now. They've helped over 6 million people with credit card debt. Without destroying your credit, they can consolidate your debts into one lower payment, reduce your interest rates, and get you out of debt fast. The program works. Call Consolidated Credit now. Call 800-406-0046. That's 800-406-0046. Consolidated Credit Counseling Services, Inc., 5701 West Sunrise Boulevard, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, 33313. Licensed by the New York Department of Financial Services and by the Vermont Department of Financial Regulation, Maryland DM 1492, Oregon DM 80092. Licensed by the Virginia State Corporation, Commission License Number DC 83. Service may adversely affect the individual's credit. Non-payment of debt may lead to additional finance charges or collections activity, including legal action, not a loan company. Once again, we welcome you back to our fourth and final segment of this week's Constitution Classroom. Your host is Colonel John Eidsmo with the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, it does my heart good to hear you talking about sound money like you were in segment three, uh, because that seems to be something that's gone out of fashion. And it also seems to be something that has um, permitted a lot of uh, mischief in terms of government spending over the years. It certainly has, and... If there's no limits to how much you can spend and you don't have to raise taxes in order to, to spend money, then why not spend all you can? And it seems there are some who think we can just keep doing that forever. I'm inclined to believe that there is going to be a point at which when even the interest on the national debt exceeds the national budget, that when that comes, that eventually the whole cart is going to break down under the load. I don't know what point that is. I would have thought it had been sooner than now, but I don't think we can continue doing this inevitably. And so for all of this that is going on, there is a price to be paid. And I certainly understand what's going on right now, the concerns about a stimulus and needing to keep the economy from taking a real nosedive and driving America into a third world situation because of, either the pandemic or the reactions or overreactions to the pandemic. But I see this as something that can't go on indefinitely. And in fact, where in the Constitution do we see any authority on the part of Congress to give out stimulus checks and so on, or to give out this PPP payment to businesses that have had to lay off employees? Normally, I would say government has no business doing that. I would add, however, just one possible thought on this, and that's that if government is telling businesses they have to shut down because of COVID, 
then maybe government does owe them some compensation for that, but maybe that should be the states that are telling them to shut down rather than the United States Congress. But anyway, besides fixing the value of money, we also have Congress with the power to fix weights and measures. And we've seen how Congress has done that. And so far, this nation has resisted the metric system that has been popular in a number of other countries. And we measure weights in terms of pounds and ounces. And we measure distances in terms of inches and feet and miles rather than millimeters and kilometers and so on. And there have been, ever since I was a kid, talk about going over to the metric system and there probably is still some talk. I haven't heard much of it recently, but that may happen eventually. But there are probably some sound reasons for keeping that as it is. But another power that we see for Congress related to the things we just talked about, and that is the power to punish counterfeiting. Now, you wonder, why should that be a federal offense rather than a state offense? Probably because it's the federal government that is coining money and the federal government that is fixing the value of money. And that being the case, that's probably a natural for Congress rather than the states to establish the punishment for counterfeiting. Next, we see the power to establish post offices and post roads. And this is a good example here to demonstrate why we ought to look at the necessary and proper clause. We see here Congress has the power to establish post offices but post offices couldn't do very much if we didn't have stamps, if we didn't have mail carriers, if we didn't have mail bags, mail carts, mail trucks, and other things like this. And so even though none of those other things are mentioned in the Constitution, we would probably have to say that establishing mail bags and postal carriers and postage stamps and the like, that these are necessary and proper to having an effective postal system. And so these would be authorized along with the post offices and post roads themselves. Interestingly, in the early history of this nation, many of our roads were post roads. In other words, roads for carrying the mail. Other roads, in fact, we spoke about turnpikes in the early days. And we usually think about a turnpike as being kind of a super highway and usually a tollway. But in the early history of our country, most turnpikes were kind of like wagon trails, but they were privately owned, and you would pay somebody a certain amount for the privilege of riding along or carrying your wagon along on this person's turnpike. And we'd talked even in those days about someday there might be a turnpike expending all the way to the Pacific Ocean. Well, we see that today, but with a very different meaning. And then we see another provision here too. And it's interesting that this is federal rather than state. And that is the power to promote the progress of science and useful arts by securing for limited times to authors and inventors, the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries. There we're talking about copyright law and patent law. Copyright usually relates to printed materials like books or music and the like. And patent usually refers to inventions. Like if you invent a vehicle or something like that, or invent a new gadget, a new 
pressure cooker or something like that, you get a patent for that. Now, part of the reason for copyrights and patents really comes back to the old biblical idea, a biblical idea that is still current today, that the laborer is worthy of his hire. And if you have gone through the trouble of inventing something, creating something, somebody else shouldn't be allowed to just come along and take your product and start marketing it. If you've written a book for somebody else to just take your book and print it and start selling it, you should be entitled to profit from your labors. And that's what copyright and patent law are intended to do. Frankly, with patent law, it's pretty easy to get around patent law by making rather minimal changes in a product. For example, if you produce a wristwatch and if somebody else produces a new wristwatch that has certain extra features and runs better than the other one, they can patent that. They just, you can just patent that people can't sell the same thing. If they make relatively minor changes, they can do so, and that helps to facilitate the progress of science. Likewise, with copyrights. And with copyrights, one of the interesting things, a lot of people don't realize this, is that there's a common saying that you can't copyright ideas. You can only copyright the expression of ideas. If you have an idea, anybody else can take that idea, but you have a copyright on the way you have expressed that idea in this book or in this song or this DVD or whatever it is you have produced. And one of the issues that comes in then, titles, for example, that you can't copyright titles. One of the best-selling books of all time is Gone with the Wind. If you wanted to write a totally different book and call it Gone, to the, Gone with the Wind, I don't think that would be a very moral thing to do, but legally you could do that. And then we have an issue of fair use. If you were to produce a book in which you quote from a previous book that somebody else has written, that is not a copyright violation unless the quote becomes too long, becomes too much. It really depends on the length of the portion of, say, if there's an article that you're quoting from, the length of the quote in proportion to the total article and so on. We call all of this fair use. There's a fair use exception. And if you Google the word fair use, you can see how this might apply to songs that you might want to reproduce in your copy machine to use in church on Sunday and things like that. But anyway, copyright and patent law is intended to simply protect those who are produced so that they may enjoy the fruit of their labor and have an incentive to produce more. Well, Colonel, we've got about one minute left before we have to wrap things up. Do you want to give us uh, maybe a very quick preview of what we hope to cover in next week's Constitution Classroom? Next week, we're going to be looking very briefly at a provision of the Constitution of Congress's power to establish tribunals inferior to the Supreme Court. This might surprise a lot of people, but there is only one court that is expressly established by the Constitution, and that is the Supreme Court. Inferior courts, the federal district and circuit courts, maritime courts, and so on, bankruptcy courts, these are established by Congress and then state courts by the states. But we'll see more of that next week, and then we'll get into international affairs, like 
the power to declare war and the power over armies. It doesn't say anything about the power to create an Air Force. So is the Air Force unconstitutional? Come back next week. Okay. And for those who are wanting to check out the archives, you can find the archives of Constitution Classroom in their entirety at lovingliberty.net. Thanks again for joining us. This has been Constitution Classroom.